please welcome our next speaker. She's a professor and head of the School of Clinical Sciences and her focus is on improving the quality use of medicines in the community. Dr. Lisa Nissen from QUT has been named Pharmacist and Young Pharmacist of the Year. Please welcome her. Standing ovation. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to take this standing ovation thing home to my pharmacy conferences and recommend that it's added as an addition. Um, thank you again for having me at one of the nursing conferences. Um, I really enjoy um, coming to talk to you about something as, as exciting as prescribing. I feel a bit underpowered that I don't have anything digital for you and I feel a little bit incompetent because I think that my career is ending with the idea that you'll all have a 3D printer making pills in the future. <laughs> So I'm a little concerned. But what I will say to you is that I think that the blockbuster drug of this century is patient engagement. Um, and while I think in my practice lifetime, and probably I'm not being judgy, but for all of you too, uh, the little white pill will not be the future of medicine. So while we can print one, I don't think it will be. Um, I, I do think that uh, engaging patients in their care in this age of digital technology uh, is going to be really important and leads nicely into what we're going to talk about, which is prescribing. I, I've been involved in the prescribing space for nursing um, for a while. I've done some work with um, the chief nurse, Deb Toms, around looking at uh, assisting the agenda around particularly um, the general nurse prescribing space more recently. Um, and certainly I've been involved with ANMAC uh, for a number of years around nurse practitioner um, uh, uh, endorsement and also with midwifery endorsement for prescribing, I have a long interest in this space. So with that being said, I come in peace. <laughs> so for all those pharmacists who've ever harmed you, said that you can't have that drug, did you mean to do that, don't touch my stuff, I apologise. <laughs> I'm not that pharmacist, I, 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 I'm one of your friends. But I think what, what Sophie says is really important, that um, the space around medicines particularly is getting much more complex. And to be honest, at least in the near future, they will continue to be the primary intervention that we use in healthcare. There's no doubt of that. And the space around who's in charge of them or who is the gateway to patients accessing them is getting more complex. And at least in my lifetime, that's gone from being maybe one or two people to now being a myriad of different health pr practitioners. Now, that's great because it increases access to care. You're using the right person with the right skill at the right time to provide um, services for patients. But there's also always conversations about fragmentation of care, continuity of care, access to information, et cetera, et cetera. You've all heard it, right? You've heard those things. So who is that patient that's in the middle? I'm never going to be Madonna. You can tell that, right? <laughs> I'm not good with these microphones, and there will be no dancing. So well, actually, there could be. Um, so the person that's in the middle is getting more complex, but that person is already you and other versions of you. So currently nurse practitioners and within different models, uh, nurses operating under different types of protocols. Uh, and certainly we already have midwives. So prescribing is complex. And in my world, prescribing is often the prescription because it's a gateway to a communication or an order. And sometimes you're on the other end of it because it is an order to administer a medicine 
for a patient. But it is definitely more than that. So if you think about it in a process, it's something where you have to think about whether it is appropriate for a patient. You have to then make some kind of clinical decision, which in pharmacy land we often talk about quality use of medicines. So is it the right drug for the right person at the right time for their condition in a safe way, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have to communicate that. And that's usually where my people come in because we're looking for the prescription that's written so that we can read it, uh, so that we know that it's on a you know, government rebated um, prescription. We know that it's got repeats, et cetera. So we often think about the communication. But the really important part is looking at whether it worked. So you need to review it. Did it work in an acute sense? And certainly in a chronic sense, it's the space around adherence and concordance with therapy. So did that asthma drug or that blood pressure medication that put them on actually work? So it's iterative if it goes around and around and around, and it should be a process of continual review. But when we look at things like poisons regulations and the law, often people just think about the script. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go along, because where it applies particularly to um, expanding and extending scopes of practice, it's the law that gets in way of what you do, not necessarily the fact that you can do the job. The process. So if we look at prescribing generally in this country, the majority of prescribers, as you would understand, are our medical prescribers. And for the foreseeable future, that may continue to be the case until we start to expand more broadly to groups like our nursing colleagues more broadly. With 300-odd thousand of you, you will usurp that um, by far. It is the most common treatment, as we know, but it costs a lot of money. Currently, prescription medicines, at least to the PBS, cost us nearly $11 billion a year. So they cost us a lot of money, but they hurt people as well. Medicines are not benign of risk. And certainly, depending on the percentages that you look at in primary care or in hospital, it can be anything from 10% to 20% of cases causing harm. So medicines hurt as well as they help. And certainly, it's something that we need to consider as an intervention that carries risk. And that's why people get so concerned. So our medical prescribers are our major source of prescriptions. But why I want to show you this is because we have to look at what is currently practice and currently the common way that we access medicines so we can have a real conversation about how other people who come into the prescribing space can do it better and what skills that we already bring to the table as health professionals that can contribute to making less error in the system and better outcomes for patients. So this is data out of Queensland, because if you're in New South Wales, it's always good to show Queensland data. <laughs> so this is from an emergency department. But I think the telling thing from this data is this is junior doctors, and the thing that scares them most, they're happy to cut people open and they probably trained on VR, AR, whatever. They're happy to cut people open, but they are petrified of prescribing. When you ask them, what is the thing you're most fearful of when you leave university? They say, prescribing. Yet, here we have the data. They will write prescriptions for things that they don't even know.
And who picks up the mess? Nurses. And pharmacists. Yes. We might laugh, but this is a massive risk to the system and to the patient. Because what if you're not there and I'm not there? They get the wrong drug for them and it causes harm. Now, Steve and I have had fun over the years debating non-medical prescribing. In fact, they reject all forms of non-medical prescribing, which is great. However, one point that they do make that we can take away from is patient safety. But we can speak to the point about patient safety because what we need to be able to do is look at what training we have, what competencies we bring to the table, and how we as health practitioners can contr contribute in our scope of practice to get better outcomes for patients. Because the point I make to my medical colleagues when I talk to them is, what are you doing about prescribing and improving how you train junior doctors and medical practitioners to make less mistakes? So we did some work um, a number of years ago um, for Health um, Workforce Task Force to look at non-medical prescribing and what the evidence was. And we saw that there was quite a lot of data um, around studies that had looked at interventions using nurse practitioners, registered nurses, and at that time there was no interventional data in the literature, even some of the grey literature around midwives. Now, I'm not saying that midwives hadn't been doing roles that related to prescribing, but we couldn't find any data. There was a lot of commentary about it, but not actual data where we could look at interventions with patients. But what it does speak to is that there is a lot of evidence to support practice. A lot of evidence to support practice. And what we also see is there's a lot of different models that people can operate under. So you can operate from anything around patient-specific models of practice to very broad models of practice. So PGDs are patient group directions, so people might have heard of those from the UK that says if you've got a group of patients who are asthmatic, you can operate in this way with those asthma patients. If you have patients who are diabetic, if you have patients who are X. So these models give you a breadth of ways that you can operate with different patient groups. And certainly collaborative and supplementary prescribing, obviously because there's a UK flavour to some of this data, were very strong in the literature. The text is quite small. I look very big on that screen. The text is quite small, but what I want to show you here is when we talk about what people do when they prescribe, people go, well, you're either independent and you can do everything, or you're not. But what I want to show you is there's nine different models that commonly occur out in the literature. And many of these models talk about initiating prescriptions for people. A lot of these models talk about going on to administer those medicines to patients when they need them. And a lot of those models talk about supervision or not having supervision. Supervision. I know supervision's a bit of a dirty word with you people. It's okay. I get it. 
it means different things to different people, but the premise is whether you work with people or not in a collaborative practice or whether you are the person who is solely responsible for the ongoing management and care of a patient. Different horses for different courses. But what this shows you is that there's lots of different ways to practice as a prescriber and to work with medicines in the literature. And the degree of autonomy or the breadth of medicines that you might be involved with increases as you go across those models, right up to independent or in our Australian context, autonomous. And so what the non-medical prescribing project that we did for National Health Workforce Task Force, and why I'm talking to you about this, because if you don't understand the past, it's really difficult to understand where we've got to now and where the future is for you. What that showed us is that there's really four main ways that you can operate. You can prescribe to administer. You can work under a model that is a protocol or a process where there's a guiding way that you practice. You can work in a collaboration or you can be autonomously responsible or independent in how you're prescribing. And it's increasing accountability and responsibility as you go along those models. So when that was progressed through to the Health Workforce Task Force, the aim of that project was to make it consistent for everybody. So obviously nurse practitioners and midwives had come through some of the preceding process with the, health uh, the National um, Health Workforce Task Force. But when the HPPP came in, it said, well, other people are going to come through. Pharmacists, physios, psychologists, podiatrists, optometrists. We want to have a consistent way that we do this for people. And we want to talk about models of practice, education, training, and accountability in the same way for everybody, making sure that people are safe and have the right knowledge to work with patients. And so the HPPP talks about a process that says, if you've got the appropriate training, and we already have that for nurse practitioners and eligible midwives, the board says that you've got a scope of practice that's appropriate, your jurisdiction gives you the access to the Health Drugs and Poisons Regulation or other, your institution is happy for you to practice in that way, and you've got a mechanism by which that you can undergo ongoing CPD to make sure that you're competent, we're all good. So if you want to come into this system, you have to talk through each of those steps. So for our RN folk who are coming through this process now, if we want to operate in a particular way or some kind of practice, we have to say, well, what competency do we have that aligns to that type of practice? What kind of training do we need? The board will then be able to go to the ministers and say, well, this is the scope of practice we want. Health, drugs and poisons then will align. <laughs> sure it will, across all the states. But anyway, it will align and then you'll be able to work within your jurisdictions and then you'll be able to have your ongoing um, competencies. So what happened with the HPPP is these bottom two models were merged. It said, if you can operate under protocol, you're going to administer them, we're going to smash those together. So we ended up with three broad, basically ambiguous models that were inclusive of what were those original nine. And what they look like in the HPPP are a structured arrangement 
or something that looks like a protocol. We have a collaboration and we have what is autonomous. The key with all of it is that it has to operate within the system, the team, and focus on the patient and have a documentation around what the practice is. It's the looseness of the team and the accountability that changes with the models. And so my point to the nursing profession broadly and the midwifery group, as well as to any profession is, be aware that you don't have to be one of these models. So for our nursing group going forward, they don't have to be the second model. They can also operate as model one. Our nurse practitioners who have an independent practice don't have to not be model two or model one. You can operate across those models of practice that you're authorised to do whatever is relevant for your clinical practice, as long as you have the authority at the appropriate level. So my message is, only be a model if you're a supermodel. <laughs> because what happens with these debates, and I guess in my reflection in being part of some of the discussions around the current process for the RNs is, people go down the model rabbit hole. And if you end up being a model, you will only be a model, and you will restrict how you can help patients to better access medicines in your scope of practice. Oops. So currently, if we have a look at, and this is a great example of it, currently if you have a look at who has authority and what models they operate under in Australia, and you'll see your own groups here, they may have an authority that is broad, but it is restricted by the scope of practice or the area that they operate in. And optometry and podiatry are an excellent example. So they have an uh, independent practice or an autonomous practice, but it is within the scope that they work in. So if a podiatrist wrote a script for an oral contraceptive, hmm, I don't know. I'll leave that with you. But does that make sense? So the national prescribing competencies sit underneath all of this, and that's what's really, really important. And what they say to us is, you are good health professionals. You're ethical, you're excellent communicators, you work in collaborative teams with other people, you communicate across different boundaries. But it also talks about taking a great history, working out whether a medication is appropriate, communicating that to the people that are relevant, and making sure you review it where it's required. So I say to you that prescribing going forward in your future, and while we will debate whatever it will be in the current consultation for nursing, and you have your standard practices as they exist now, Prescribing is a tool like any other clinical tool that you use and you teach at your universities to graduates. We often think it's special, but it is like any other clinical tool. Because much of this is generic skill. Much of it is generic skill. We as pharmacists like to lay claim to medicines as being special, it's just because we spend four years doing it, right? The therapeutics maybe, you know, 
So yes, there are things around the clinical decision making that involve drugs that you need to know more about, but the rest is very generic. And so if you take your professional competencies or standards and you overlay them with the prescribing competencies, it's the gap that we're interested in. And so if you look at the evidence, and there's some evidence that came out of the UK a number of years ago, and there's been a more recent report that's looked at prescribing, particularly for nurses, you don't want to be in the situation where 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you have 3 or 5% of your workforce involved in medicines. And I've been involved in training nurse practitioners for 10 plus years in two universities. I know that you don't have thousands and thousands of them. You don't want to be in this situation. We need to revolutionise healthcare, not slowly evolve it based on individuals who are prepared to run into the ocean and be chased by seagulls. And to do that, we need major system change. So you've got to think about scope of practice. And it is about optimising the skills that you bring to the system massive amount of skill that you bring to the system about patient communication, contact, diagnosis, um, your scopes of practice particularly, and it's across the whole sector, right? Ultimately, it's about the patient. But currently, scope of practice is limited by legislation, its professional boundaries, and certainly system barriers. So I want to put to you that there are a couple of things to think about as you go forward in your future. We often fight the system without thinking about what is possible. So expanded practice is about using your full training. I learned stuff at uni that I've never used in practice. Mercurochrome suppositories. Mm. <laughs> Distilling oil from eucalyptus leaves. I don't know how much I would use that in practice. No. It's actually about using what you can do for your full competency in practice. And that is often limited by the system, other professions, and legal barriers. It doesn't mean that you can't do it. So we often let the legal system tell us what we can't do, not looking at what we're competent to do. Then we look at... at actually looking at extending practice. And that's where we say, you know what? We didn't do a four-year pharmacy degree. Maybe we don't need to. Maybe there are things that we need to add to allow us to step into this space on top of our base training. Maybe that's what we need to do. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And there's a lot of jurisdictions that are looking at how we can look at expanding practice based on what we can actually do. And public health sector is the greatest barrier, often, to expanding practice. So what does it mean? So we did a project uh, that we finished uh, towards the end of last year called Aspirin, because we're pharmacists and we wanted to call it something that was a drug name. So we thought of the name and then we fitted the project title to it. So Aspirin looked at the competencies of nine different professions and it included um, uh, 
professions that were prescribing and emerging prescribing professions. And we looked at standards or competencies, codes of conduct and others to see how they aligned with prescribing. And it's really interesting because prescribing is new for lots of professions. So I think you need to absorb that as well. Because you're sitting here, probably like me, I didn't learn how to prescribe. I teach people to prescribe, it's ironic. But I didn't learn how to prescribe. And a lot of you guys haven't necessarily learned how to prescribe or it's been retrofitted to your existing training. Okay, and what this reflects to us is that that's the case. Most of our training programs prepare health practitioners to take excellent clinical histories. We learn lots about our patients. So this is what this curve tells us. So we take excellent clinical histories. We understand our patients. We have a reasonable understanding of treatments. And some of this, as you might um, understand, is specifically about medicines. And we're really good at communicating with other people. But when we have particular decisions around prescribing, not so great. But that makes sense, right? Because we haven't been brought up as prescribers. Do you think that can get better if you're actually allowed to do it? Because what will happen to the training programs? We'll make graduates who know how to prescribe. And so if you look at some data that we've got from my own university, we looked at the prescribing um, competencies that were assessed and taught in a number of programs that do involve medicines. And not surprisingly, they're very high. Even in courses that, you know, we included pharmacy because I was doing the project. But if you look at um, courses like nurse practitioners, optometry and podiatry, who do have contact with medicines, they're very high. This scale does not start at zero. And so we also asked people what their confidence were to undertake prescribing tasks. And not surprisingly, um, you can see from this data, this is nurse practitioners I'm showing you, um, that they were quite confident to take histories. But it started to get a bit fuzzy as it went along. But that was the same for all the professions. So these included medical practitioners, optometrists. And these perceptions of whether we taught it or whether people learnt it were similar for students and for staff. So the good thing is students thought they learnt it and staff thought they taught it. So there wasn't a major gap so we felt pretty happy about that. So this is preparedness to prescribe. So we took people that were at the end of their training and we said, in your scope of practice where you're expected to work, how do you feel about prescribing? So this is all the groups that we looked at. And you can see somewhat very well and some not very well. How do you think the NPs went in this group? Do you think we've got some not very wells? Oh, some nodding. Yay! That's good. You know, we're not talking about thousands of people, right, that were responding, but still, that's pretty good. So that was very well or somewhat. 
And again, not surprising, because this is how we teach it. We don't spend enough time in our curriculums currently on the things that probably most important around confidence for people related to prescribing. So we do spend a lot of time filling up people's brains around some of these things that we think are important. And you guys spend or bring a lot of value to the table around patience, collaboration, communication, and quite frankly, much better than we do. As pharmacists, we can learn heaps from spending time with you. And in the combined training programs that we've been running, that's been amazing to spend time uh, with folk who do it much better than we do. But prescribing is a different lens to applying this. And that's what's really important in curriculums and going forward for you all will be really important for the professions to embrace. Because while we can teach pharmacology, and I would say to you pharmacotherapy is probably more important, it's actually piecing them together because the students don't get it when it is in an individual unit or a course or a lecture. It's as, as exciting as putting the immersive glasses on and doing your resus on a baby. Great in theory, but until you get to practice it in a consolidated way where it's observed and you're given feedback, it is bloody scary. I know they've got high blood pressure. I know that an ACE inhibitor does something in the kidneys. How do I put those two things together? So, my final points are about expertise development, and this is what's really important. Because prescribing is a tool, how do you make these people? And I put to you to the fact, at this point in time, we are sticking the ice cream on top of the cone. We are trying to put prescribing on top of your core training, whether you're a nurse practitioner or whether you're an eligible midwife, and I would say to you, please, when you do your next standards, stick prescribing in the in the undergrad program for midwifery. I know that the RN standards are up for review. I know that you're increasing the quality use of medicines. If the scope changes going forward, please, please put this in undergrad. Because what we have learned from doing this research work is you have to make a Cornetto <laughs> because it tastes better. You don't want the ice cream to fall off the top. And at the moment, that's what we're doing because we're retrofitting. Please, prospectively, try and build a Cornetto. Because what we're talking about is expertise development. You want to get to the point where it is like seeing the rash, where you go, you know what? That's that funky worm that you get from Africa when you swim in that river because that's experience and that's the development of expertise. Because at the moment, we're not getting that because we're not embedding it across the timeline for practice. That comes with reflection and it comes with time. And while you have great experience and expertise in the other areas, you're trying to capstone on the prescribing. And it will work because you're practitioners in practice, but it will take much more time. The news is good, 
The prescribing competencies are well embedded as a platform in what you have. A lot of the gaps, particularly for autonomous practice for you, are about clinical reasoning and advancing practice in particular scopes and particular patients. So the news is excellent. You are well tasked for prescribing. For curriculums, it will be challenging. Everybody will say, there's not enough space. We already have a crowded curriculum. Ooh, we'll have to fight with timetabling. Mm, who'll teach it? It'll be hard. Who will supervise them in clinical practice? Blah, blah, blah. If you want to do it, you can make it happen. And I think you should do it. You have to make practice through practice. As much as you want them to be able to resus people, to make good clinical observations, to do other things, any engagement in quality uses medicines in your program will improve people's practice because medicines are the major intervention. And this balance and challenge will be important in the future. It will be a challenge, but you have leadership in this. As professional organisations and people in the profession, you need to drive this forward because you already touch medicines everywhere. You have roles in administration, already in prescribing. You can do more. Because what I would say to you, that this opportunity zone about what is right in front of you and what is right for you intersecting is rare. But it is right now for nursing and midwifery going forward. And the current discussions at the board are only part of that. But to move everybody forward, you've got a great opportunity. And part of that is looking at it as expertise development. And all of these things are great considerations and strategies, lessons learned, things that you have fought over time for. The value proposition, the turf wars, how can we improve patient care? What can we learn from data? What can we learn from other people? These are all the fights that you have constantly fought to get where you have got for all of the services and provisions that you have. Apply the same thing, because your value and things that you can do for patients are massive. Massive. I see a massive future, and we will stand right behind you with our 30,000 pharmacists and follow behind. <laughs> because we're already learning lessons from how you're approaching it, the value that can add to the system, and how we can work in partnership together. So my message, step through the door, take the opportunity, build yourself a Cornetto. Thank you. <laughs>